NXT, New York City. Welcome to Hot 97's Street Soldiers, the hottest talk on radio. Hosted by Lisa Evers. I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm Lisa Evers, your host. You know where to find me on Twitter, the Gram, Facebook, at Lisa Evers. And we are kicking off Black History Month on this Super Bowl Sunday with a special focus on black athletes, their achievements, the challenges, the ongoing racism that continues, but also celebrating the achievements that so many have made in so many fields. But where are we today in 2016 with this? That's what we're going to find out from our guests. Joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers, Damon Harrison. He's an NFL player, a defensive tackle for the New York Jets. Damon, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Also with us is Shana Renee Stevenson. She's a sports blogger. Her website is allsportseverything.com. She also writes for ESPN. Shana, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Also with us in studio, Super Bowl champion with the New York Giants, Super Bowl 46. And uh, if you could see him in studio, we're seeing the ring here, so it's kind of a little dazzling. <laughs> Chris Canty, defensive lineman. He was with the New York Giants. Now he plays with the Baltimore Ravens. He's from the Bronx. Uh, you probably hear him on radio. You see him on TV commentating with Duke Castiglione on Fox 5 and Fox 5 sports shows. And he also started a foundation to help the kids called the Chris Canty Foundation. So we got a lot to talk with him about as well. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Lisa. We really appreciate it. Also with us is Peter Keating. He's a senior writer for ESPN. He's written about race and economics and sports and also black athletes who have broken barriers throughout history. So he's going to give us that perspective perspective on things. Peter, thank you so much for being with us. Good to be back. We really appreciate it. Okay, as we, uh, you know, the countdown to the Super Bowl is on, one of the biggest quarterbacks in NFL history, one of the most famous stars, one of the players who's been the most watched, Cam Newton, last week said that race does play a part in terms of how he is perceived despite all of his achievements and the accolades that he's received. Chris, what do you think about that? Well, I think he's being honest about his experience as a quarterback in the National Football League and one of the emerging faces for the National Football League. I think people are so quick to dismiss the issue of race in our society because it's a conversation that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, but if you look at some of the criticisms that Cam has faced throughout his career, people can't particularly point to his level of professionalism or anything that he's done on or off the field um, and say that that's a negative. And I think that when people really, really think about it in, in their heart of hearts, they understand that it's probably an issue surrounded by by race. So some of the comments, like like what kinds of things have been said about him for people that haven't really been, <laughs> you know, deep in the football game? Well, people have said that, you know, he's, he's unprofessional in, in terms of the way he celebrates after he scores touchdowns. Uh, people are saying that he hasn't necessarily put in the work to become an elite quarterback, which I think he's defying uh, in his 2015 season, taking his team 15-1 record into the Super Bowl. Um, but um, it's been issues and it's been topics along those lines. Not Nothing particularly about, um, you know, him as a leader on that football team. Nothing negative about how he conducts himself in the community. So we have to look at it and say, well, what's the real issue here? And what is the real issue? It's that issue of race that is just people don't want to really focus well, on yeah, or talk I, about. I think people don't want to talk about it because it makes them uncomfortable. And it's also a degree of placism. Um, Cam doesn't necessarily fit into the box of what we call uh, a prototypical NFL quarterback. You know, he looks different. Um, you know, he's out there on the field swagging a little different. You know <laughs> what I mean? And uh, he appeals to a younger generation. Uh, so I think there there is a... a um, uh, some people out there in the population that aren't accustomed to seeing a quarterback behave in that way, and that makes them a little uncomfortable. 
um, and they're uncomfortable about his status as um, one of the faces of the National Football League in the future. And also with the record, I mean, the tremendous record of achievement and all the titles he's he's already won yeah, and, yeah. and helped gain. Peter Keating, ESPN writer, when you look at how the media as a whole has covered Cam Newton, what Chris was saying in terms, is there like is this like a cultural divide too? It's almost like the NFL's version of the divide between hip-hop and mainstream culture? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, the criticism of Cam Newton goes back to, to uh, before his pro career even started. There was a scouting report written by Pro Football Weekly when he came out of college off what was probably the greatest season ever by a college quarterback. Uh, the scouting report said uh, it focused on things like how he looked disingenuous and had a fake smile and didn't throw a tight spiral. Um, quarterback is a tough position for black athletes to crack still because... Um, you know, just explain for you because well, it's considered that you're the team leader. You're the team leader, you're it's, the center of the action, you're the spokesman, you're the guy. You're, there's you're the brains. The it's the brains and the brawn. Well, that's the thing, right? Which is the. Sports, I mean, let's just the, put it right the there on the table. establishment, coaches, owners, and a good section of the media really want players to have to follow a system. And if you're a quarterback who's not traditional, um, if you run or if you freelance on the field or if you celebrate too much or you're just a big. Uh, but non-traditional, meaning non-white personality, um, you get all kinds of criticism. And Cam's faced that, Cam Newton's faced that uh, his whole career. And it's not really performance-based, uh, which, which is what's interesting. You can see so clearly that it's not performance-based. I mean, there have been black quarterbacks who, um, let's say, were very mobile. So they tended to run a lot and get sacked a lot and get hurt, like Robert Griffin. Sometimes criticism of, of players like that seems tinged with these kind of dog whistles. But... But then again, those guys were getting sacked and getting hurt. Cam does it all, right? Newton does it all, and his team is 15-1 and one this year, and he's still getting criticized for what? For dancing? Yeah, for, for celebrating and the yeah. cultural. <laughs> Shana, what, Shana Renee Stevenson, allsportseverything.com. Yeah. You also write for ESPN. You talk about coded language. Right. What do you mean by that? So by that I mean that just historically black quarterbacks have been defined more so by their physical attributes, you know, their ability to run you know, be more mobile, whereas white quarterbacks have been praised for their intellectual capacity. So you notice that um, there's just this kind of stigma against black quarterbacks, and they're not given the credit for being as cerebral as their white counterparts at that same position, because the quarterback is considered to be the brains of the team, the offense of the team. So where you look at some quarterbacks who are described as being co confident, black quarterbacks are considered to be cocky or arrogant. Or, um, you know, whereas white quarterbacks might be considered passionate, black quarterbacks are considered to be immature or too showy. You know, so there, there are these, these different descriptors that we use. The flip the side of the same exactly, coin. Exactly, exactly. And, it's, and it means certain things. You think that's sending signals to people. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that just in general, and, it, and, it's, and we see this in terms of like outside of sports as well. You know, it's just not um, something that applies to just black quarterbacks or point guards or, you know, these, these leadership roles within sports. We see it in corporate America. We see it in ways in which the media covers crimes and, you know, um, people who are considered to be victims or the aggressors, you know, I think it's just prevalent in our society because just it's a symptom of, you know, a greater race issue that we have to deal with. And people think there's, and there's that attitude too, that some people have, okay, well, you have a black president, everything's okay. Exactly. We don't and, need to I deal mean, with and anything. We, and, and we see it with President Obama as well. Like he's not, um, he's not one that is able to shirk the kind of criticism that we see from, you know, Cam Newton. So, and it's in, at the end of the day, it's entertainment, you know what I mean? So if the, if 
President Obama is being criticized in, in unfair terms, then, of course, a Cam Newton is going to be criticized in a similar way. And, and, and in such a, in a field that has so much attention on it and that, that's so popular in the, with the NFL and the, and the games and everything. Damon Harrison, in terms of the work that it goes in to just compete at that level at the NFL, tell us a little bit about that, what goes on. And do you, do you hear, I mean, there, I hear stories like my, my friends will say, okay, well, my mother, my father said, you know what, you're African-American, you're a black child, you have to do twice as well and really make sure that you don't give any room for any kind of criticism because they're really going to come down on you, especially if you're really good. Oh, yes, ma'am, definitely, especially off the field. Um, you can you can be as good as you want to be on the field, but if you're not putting things together in your life off the field, that throws a red flag for every NFL team, and they tend to shy away from those type of guys. So you can be the most gifted guy on the planet, but if you're not doing things right off the field, then – I mean, you really can't help the NFL as a whole because everything is about marketing. How can they market a guy who's just not doing things right? And your faith is very important to you. Tell us, tell us about that. I grew up in the church. Um, my mom, my grandfather, and a good portion of my uncles were pastors, preachers down in the South. So we went to church every Sunday. We were in Bible school. We were in the children's choir. And I've always just been taught that as long as you have something to keep you centered and keep you grounded, and um, I use my faith in that way, and it, it's helped me along the way. I, I haven't been in trouble off the field. I'm sorry, but I just I just attribute that to to something that I can go back to anytime I'm feeling down in my life. I can pick a verse in the Bible, and then it help pick me back up. Because people look at you differently. I I would imagine once mm-hmm. you go from you know as, as soon as you go through that NFL draft, and everybody knows you know all people have to do now is look on their phone and they they see what you're making. Mm-hmm. They know that you're a pro now, and then they start to look at you differently. And there's different temptations, and all of a sudden there's like you know a bunch of different detours that you can you can go on. Tell me what your faith did for you as you were going through that process, you know, hitting into the big leagues. Well, I, I, I always haven't been the guy who's done things right. Um, I've always been a firm believer, you know, in the Christian faith, but um, I strayed away a couple times. And um, as I got into the NFL and I saw that it wasn't a game anymore, I could lose everything that I worked hard for. And to me, um, just drawing closer to my faith, it helped me realize that none of that was worth it. So. I made a conservative effort to just stay to myself as much as I can. As much as it's a team game, I know people look at me differently. I'm I'm a big black guy. I scare a lot of people the way I talk. I'm passionate the way I'm talking. They look at it as aggressiveness. So I just stay to myself. And that's that's something that we've heard too. I mean, we've talked about that in the context of of civil rights too on the show. Is that there's that that perception if you are a a tall, if you are a large African American man, that's automatically seen as aggressive. But isn't that a good thing in football, Peter? Well, I think the level of work that Damon's talking about is what fans miss because of all the coded language and perceptions that we're talking about. There was a study done of words used by analysts during the NFL draft. And most of the words that everybody uses are things like athlete or athletic or speed. But they looked at the words that were only used to describe white athletes and only used to describe black athletes. And the word most commonly used that was only used for white athletes was the word intelligent. And the word that was only used to describe black athletes more than any other was natural. And there's this assumption natural. that black athletes are yeah. gifted naturally. And that, I mean, if somebody like Cam Newton wasn't working 24 seven to stay at the level where he was, he wouldn't still be in the league, right? But I think the coded language leads us to overlook all too often the work that 
Damon's talking about that all athletes at this level put in all the time. So Chris, so when you say somebody's a natural, I would think that's a compliment, but in the context Peter's talking about, that's like, well, you don't really have to work as hard as everybody else to be as good as them, is that? Well, at least I think it's it's an insult, to be honest with you. You're wow. discounting all of the effort that somebody's putting in to achieve something that they've always had as a goal in their life. <clears throat> and when you talk about some of those uh, some of those words, some of the coded language that's referred to, you know, around the industry. Dam- Damon and I can tell you, you know, high motor, you know, intelligence. Those are terms that <laughs> are <laughs> high never, motor, high motor, <laughs> intelligent. Uh, you know, you know, they never refer to you know African American players uh, in our National Football League with those terms. Plucky, exactly, <laughs> cerebral. Exactly. You know, exactly, yes. exactly, and so. Uh, it's a situation where you're discounting all the effort that they're putting in, all of the work that they're doing to study, um, to become this this player that can compete on this level. And it's it's um it's disappointing. It's disappointing. Yeah, and I like to add, yeah, it totally undermines their work ethic and all the accomplishments that they've made. I mean, if you listen to Cam, he talks about this was a childhood dream of his, as I'm sure you know you guys as well. So. It's no different than the work that Tom Brady puts into being considered the best quarterback maybe of all time. And, it, and, it's, and it's just these unfair biases and these underlining messages that are sent that I think goes back to, you know, a lot of blacks being considered lazy. Like that's ultimately what they're saying is that they don't have the same desire to put in the work and that we're lazy. Which is outrageous. Right. That's totally outrageous. Do you think if you you look at the Flategate with Tom Brady, if that had been a black quarterback, do you think he would still be in the league? Peter? I, I'm putting I, you on the hot seat on that uh, one. <laughs> well, the I, way that it was covered. It I, was kind of like, oh, this is just high. I mean, I thought I'm not as a, I, you a know, sports reporter, as a news reporter, was kind of like, oh, this is like hijinks. This is almost like frat boy. I think among, I mean, I may have my own perspective on this, but I think among New England fans, uh, Patriots Nation, right? Um, they appreciate Brady and Belichick for a lot of the things we're talking about that, you know, they're brilliant right. and cerebral and hardworking. And, um, you know, in that case, they really are, right? So I, I you know, um, I, I think Patriots fans probably would have stuck by their quarterback no matter what, but I think the media in general would have been a lot more suspicious if it wasn't the golden boy Tom Brady who was implicated Married in to this. the supermodel mm-hmm. yeah. and like that. Well, let, let's talk about the... Um, some of the realities today, because Peter, you wrote, you wrote about Jackie Robinson, just seeing the movie and then realizing, wow, he was playing baseball at a time when, as a black player, he could not even stay in the hotel. He was not even wanted in some of the towns. There were physical, you know, there was, and they under, I think they kind of under downplayed that in the movie, but I'm sure tremendous physical th- threats to his safety and to his his family. And yet he handled that the way that he handled that and went on to break that barrier. But when you when you look at that. What can we learn from that today, do you think? Well, I think one thing people should remember, I mean, in the particular case of Jackie Robinson, is that he he basically gave his life for the cause. I mean, people don't remember that he ended up with diabetes, white-haired at the age of 53, half-blind, and died really young. Um, I mean, he was was under pressure like no athlete has faced for about 20 years after he broke in. Yeah, about 25 years after he broke into the big leagues. Um, And then what what I'm interested in is, is, is somebody that great who breaks a barrier, do other players or athletes or managers or coaches follow? You know, a lot of players followed Jackie Robinson because the baseball ownership couldn't stop talented players from playing without right. giving up games. It wasn't so similar with Frank Robinson, the first black manager in baseball. There wasn't a wave of black managers after he became the first black manager in 1975. Some of these barriers are a lot harder to break 
than others. And are there, there's still be, are there still barriers you but see you with just, management I mean, and with yeah, ownership? I mean, you just heard about some yeah. about how some of these athletes are still evaluated and, and, and given a chance or not given a chance, right? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think when you were saying some barriers are harder to break than others, particularly the ones that are in managerial positions, right. front office positions, yeah. head coaching positions, positions of authority, um, you're not seeing the the amount of minorities in those positions that we would like to. If you think about the National Football League, over two-thirds of our membership is African-American. Right. Yeah, you look at the last coaching hiring cycle, out of the seven teams that hired new head coaches this year, only one was an African-American. You know, you look around at the general managers in the, in the National Football League. We're not represented there at the rate that we feel like we should be. And it's not due to a lack of qualified candidates. What, what's the real issue there? And, and is there a certain and, and there's a there's pools I would guess of, of African American coaches that are at the college level or whatever the the procedure a you know the the stepping stones are to that right absolutely and the NFL to its credit has done a good job of bringing in minority coaches whether it's programs that they have during training camp where coaches can come and be a part of the coaching staff at that time whether it's scouting they've tried to integrate and get people in but these gentlemen are not getting the opportunities to be hired you know the the league has done a good job with having the Rooney Rule in place which requires each NFL team to interview a minority coaching candidate before it hires a new coach. But these coaches are not getting those jobs. They're not being hired. And after a while, you know, if you're in that cycle and you're interviewing with team after team after team, the next team that interviews you looks at you and kind of says, well, nobody else is hiring them. There must be yeah. something wrong with them. So ultimately, <laughs> something that was put in place to create an opportunity ends up working to the detriment of that candidate. What about, um, Shana, what about with the female athletes? Right. Because, you know, they, they I'm sure there's even added pressure because of being a woman. There's Absolutely. That whole thing I too. mean, Serena Williams, greatest women's tennis player, you could argue maybe greatest tennis player ever. Um, and she's constantly battling labels or having her talent, her accomplishments diminished. And, and I think with her, it's more about body image, um, especially, you know, tennis is a, a affluent white sport. Serena Williams is from Compton, California. You know, when her and Venus came on the scene, she had her braids with her beads. You know, it didn't get any blacker than that. Right. So that, you know, as you say earlier, Chris, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And then for her to dominate the sport for 20 years um, is really something that people still have a hard time accepting. And then she does it, you know, with her being um, muscular and strong. And those are words that I find to be amazing. However, when the media describes her, they use it as a way to discredit her or to say, you know, how she overpowers her competition, which takes away from her talent, which takes away from her athleticism. What about the uh, Peter in, in terms of the writing, in terms of the, the sports reporting, the analyzing these live, these comments? Is there any consciousness among the sports writers to to change that, the ones that are like the broadcasters, Chris, uh, too. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to take a sustained effort. I think a lot of beat writers just came up in a different time when they were closer to the athletes, when the sport was more white, when athletes weren't making as much money. And I think there's, uh, among a lot of uh, some reporters, there's just kind of an instinctive distance from the athletes they're covering, which makes it easy to slip into language that is is coded I you know I don't think there's a lot of there is I mean everywhere there's some overt racism but a lot of it is it's actually a little more disturbing because it's just in the patterns of how people right. think mm -hmm. you know you see two athletes celebrating the same way but want to call an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty 
on a black athlete, whereas you wouldn't on a white athlete. There's actually a study done uh, where, where 44 knowledgeable fans were shown athletes celebrating, and they were just as likely to call white or black players arrogant or say, you know, that's right or wrong, but they were much more likely to want a penalty called on the black player. So how do you change that? I mean, if accomplishment doesn't change that, if the facts don't change that, how do we change that? Well, I mean, there's some, still some hope that accomplishment will change it. Um, you know, Cam Newton may help change it. A whole new generation of fans is already changing it. And it takes a lot of work. It takes writers and editors being more conscious of what they're doing and especially what they're saying on the air. I think and, there needs to be more diversity in these newsrooms, basically. I think that, yeah. um, that you know, a large 85% or more of the newsrooms are white. They don't understand or they lack central... Uh, cultural sensitivities, racial sensitivities, and awareness when it comes to covering black athletes because they can't relate to uh, you know, their upbringing. And not saying that all black athletes share a monolithic experience because that's not what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is that you know, they, it's, there's this distance created between them where they just don't get it. So I think that what will change it is, yes, a new generation coming in, but then also there just needs to be more diversity. Definitely. And, and, def- and the, uh, the generational aspect, obviously, very, very important, the diversity. And no one group is all, all monolithic, right. too. And there's a lot of that. Well, you're listening to Hot 97 Street Soldiers. We're kicking off Black History Month. We're talking about the accomplishments and the challenges facing our black athletes today. And when we come back, I'm going to ask our guests about accomplishments, who inspired them. And also, we're going to talk about so many of our black athletes are giving back to their communities and what that's all about. We'll be back right after this. Welcome Welcome back to Hot 97 Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers, on Twitter, Instagram, Google+, and also Facebook, at Lisa Evers. And we're going to get back to our conversation on black athletes in just a moment. But right now, we're going to check in with Norman Seabrook, president of COBA. That's the Correction Officers Benevolent Association, big supporter of Hot 97 in Emmis, New York. And Norman, we have been hearing a lot of talk about the city jails and what's going on, that they're supposed to be reformed, that there have been reforms, but that some of these reforms might have put correction officers' lives and safety in danger. What do you see going on from your vantage point? Well, good morning, and, and thank you, Lisa, for, for having me. I think that what's important, what the public needs to understand, is that reform is a uh, necessary conversation on both sides, for correction officers, for inmates, for the non-uniform members of the agency, for civilians. Um, just uh, last week, um, President Barack Obama wrote a op-ed piece in the Washington Post, and he t- entitled it, Why Must We Rethink Solitary Confinement? And I wrote an op-ed piece that aired in USA Today uh, last week uh, opposing his argument because at the end of the day, when you have an individual that continues to slash uh, correction officers, slash rape, stab, extort other inmates, um, physically assault non-uniform members of the agency, there must be a place for you to put these individuals that are out of control, that don't want to follow the rules and regulations in the confines of a jail. So my question to the President of the United States, to the Mayor of the City of New York, to all of those who say solitary confinement is is punitive, what do we do with the inmates that continue to violate the law in the confines of a jail and continue to assault officers, inmates, and civilians? Now, I'm the first person to say that I don't think that a person should be put in 
punitive segregation for 15 years or 10 years or some of these horror stories you hear about. I believe that the individual that commits an infraction and violates the law in the confines of a jail should be placed in punitive segregation for that period of time. And hopefully they'll get their lives together. They talk about the fact that uh, some of these young men, 17, 18, 19, Well, that's what I wanted to ask old. you about, was yeah. the teens. Well, well, the teens, their their minds were developed when they shot the five-year-old in the head with the nine millimeter. Their minds were developed when they went into the local corner store and decided to hold it up and, and, and or hold a, a young lady against her will and, and commit all kinds of crimes against her. So at the end of the day, I understand what what people are talking about, but they don't they don't understand what goes on in the confines of a jail. A 17 or an 18 year old that are, that is incarcerated on Rikers Island and commits an act of violence against someone needs to be placed someplace else. But there are no solutions. Everybody wants to say close Rikers Island. So look, if you want a jail on 65th Street and Park Avenue, gladly help you build one. But at the end of the day, they don't want to talk about that. The communities in which are going to receive these jails is the South Bronx, certain parts of Brooklyn. It's not going in Park Slope. It's not going next to Gracie Mansion. It's not going next to the UN. So at the end of the day, People need to have a conversation, and that's all the union is asking for, to be able to sit down at the table and come up with real solutions that are going to affect the communities in which we live. And that work for everybody. They have to work for everybody. All right, Norman, I want to thank you so much for being with us on this episode of Street Soldiers. That's uh, Norman Seabrook, president of COBA, the Correction Officers Benevolent Association, talking about what's going on with the city jails. And we're going to continue with our discussion about black athletes right after this. Yeah, you already know what it is, man. This is B.I.G. Sean. And this is the Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, real people, only on Hot 97. At Lisa Evers on Twitter, the Gram, and Facebook. Also Google+. And also you can hear free podcasts of this show if you're just joining us. And previous Street Soldiers episodes on LisaEvers.com. And we're also on iTunes in the free podcast section. You can check us out there, too. We are kicking off Black History Month on the Super Bowl Sunday talking about black athletes. Is there still a double standard? And if so, what can be done to change it? And we're also celebrating the accomplishments of so many of our black athletes who are making headway and just setting new records almost like on a regular basis here. Um, joining us in studio, Damon Harrison. He's an NFL player, defensive tackle for the New York Jets. Shana Renee Stevenson, she's a sports blogger. Her website is allsportseverything.com. She also writes for ESPN. Also with us is Super Bowl champion from Super Bowl 46 with the New York Giants, defensive lineman Chris Canty. He's now with the Baltimore Ravens. He's from the Bronx. You see him on TV on Fox 5 with Duke Castiglione, our Fox 5 sports anchor, all over the radio. And uh, he also has a foundation to help the kids called the Chris Canty Foundation. Also joining us, Peter Keating. He's a senior writer for ESPN and has written about race and economics and sports and black athletes who have broken barriers. What is it going to take to change these attitudes? Do we just keep going? Do we challenge it? Chris, what do you think has to happen? Well, Lisa, I think what we're doing right now helps to change change it. We're having a conversation. And I think that when you have those conversations that make people uncomfortable, force them to look at themselves, you raise awareness. And I love what Cam Newton did with his platform last week and this week um, surrounding the Super Bowl, talking about it, starting that conversation, utilizing the platform that he has 
as a quarterback, which is the most important position in all of sports, uh, and to talk about the issue of race and surrounding that, how he's perceived and the actual reality of what he's doing now. And do you, Damon, do you, do you ever feel, have you ever felt like just in life in general too, like you, you're perceived a certain way and you, you have to explain to people like, wait, this is who I am? Oh, definitely. Um, just off of physical appearance alone. Um, like I said, I'm a big black guy and I have dreads. Automatically, I'm perceived as a thug or somebody who's just looking to harm people. And, you know, it's actually the total opposite, man. I'm a teddy bear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, until you sit down and have a conversation with me, um, just the stigma of, of black athletes or black men in general, I think you, you're forced to think otherwise. Because it's it's the the issue that's in society too mm-hmm. right now, yeah. like at all at, at all kinds of levels. Peter, in terms of the attitudes of the sports writers, do you like the regular media? A lot of times, the news media we pick up on whatever tone or whatever headline comes out of the sports. Yeah, I think the the writers like as we talked about, there's 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 coded language there. I I also like I think with the NFL, it's the structure of the sport and how it's played too. When Ben Roethlisberger got hurt earlier this year, the the Steelers picked up Michael Vick, and I was in the car listening to the radio, and I heard an analyst say, in order for them to be successful, they would have to make sure Michael Vick didn't play like Michael Vick. And I was sitting there, and I was thinking, why would you sign Michael Vick if you didn't want Michael Vick? Right. But, but it's very – now, these guys know more than I do how much discipline and command and control it takes to run a successful football team. But I think a lot of teams probably go too far, and there's this whole element of you have to fit into the system the way it's always been run and the game the way it's always been played. And, um, and it's hard – for anyone who's not a traditionalist, which includes a lot of creative black athletes, to fit into that without getting criticized. And a lot of the current generation, yeah, too. Yeah, and I, I actually wonder if it's just going to ultimately, in the NFL, if it's going to take new ownership. You know, in the NBA, there are a lot of new owners who are younger uh, owners, a lot of them from tech or finance, as opposed to oil and gas or old money, right. and a lot of them younger, and uh, a commissioner who's very comfortable with African Americans in general, and you know who cracked out on Donald Sterling. And I just wonder if if the NFL has to where it's where the owners are a lot older and richer. Um, is it going to have to go through a wave of ownership change for the game to ever loosen up a little? Right, well, Chris. What do you think about that? Is there like this, this culture clash? Because also, too, it seems like a lot of the, a lot of the current players and the players coming up too. There's much more, like there is with all fields, you know, with it, with all kinds of performance, whether it's sports, whether it's music, whether it's it's news. There's that entrepreneurial thing. Like everybody knows, okay, you got your shot. Now you got to do this. You got to make the mm-hmm. most of it. And as opposed to just being like a sheep or being like, you know, a, a team player from the past where you do everything without questioning it whether it's good for you or not. Do you think there's this, this cultural shift that has to happen? Well, well, here's what I'll say about that. The NFL is such a, a big, powerful business, and it exerts that, that power and that authority and that leverage over its players. And, and certainly if you're one of the players that rocks the boat, so to speak, in talking about things or in any way, shape, or form taken away from what's taking place on the field, the NFL is going to address you, and that usually means you're going to find yourself out of a job. Now, what I love about what Cam Newton has done, he's taken that platform of being the most important player on a team that's in the Super Bowl with this platform surrounding it, and he's talking about the issue of race. It's much harder to silence somebody that's in the position of Cam Newton than it is a guy that's number you know, 51, 52, 53 on the active roster, a guy that they can just cut and get rid of. So I think it's going to take the players coming together in solidarity and talking about it and raising awareness about it. But the NFL is, is a business in which the players – 
uh, look at it as a finite opportunity to maximize as much as they can from it, which is make as much money as they can in a short period of, period of time. And I think that until we get the players in the NFL thinking about working together more as a community rather than focusing on you know their individual you know circumstances, I think that we will be better off in terms of raising awareness and, and, and actually fighting the issue of racism and placism in sports. So you say you, you think what, what Cam has been doing is making it more comfortable for everybody, blacks and whites, to talk about this issue? Because you're right. I mean, if you, you bring up race in mixed company, you're making everybody uncomfortable because everyone's like, okay, I don't want this. What do, I, do you know what I'm saying? Well, Unless it's our show and then we talk about everything. <laughs> well, what, um, I think, what I think he's doing is he's forcing people to have the conversation right. whether they want to talk about it or not. Um, you know, people in you know sports studios, ESPN radio studios, you know NBC sports studios, wherever they are, they're they're having this conversation because Cam is saying that this is his reality. This yeah. is how people are perceiving him, and he's making people question. Well, why is that? Because it's not what he's doing on the field in terms of his performance. It's not what he's doing in the community because all of that has been positive. Right. So what is it about me that you don't like? Right. And people don't we checked off every people, box. People except don't want to look in the mirror and see right. the flaws of themselves yeah it makes them uncomfortable and here's the thing people don't want that with their sports their sports is their escape from their reality they don't want to look True. at their sports and say hey hey i don't want you taking away my football by talking about race i don't want you to do that i don't want to take away my super bowl week by talking about this issue of race in our country i don't want to deal with that right now cam newton is forcing them to deal with it he's forcing them to have the conversation and that's what i love about what he's done this past couple of weeks. yeah no it's, it's really incredible let's talk about um accomplishments and inspiration damon were there any players that you looked up to as you were coming up just in terms of how they played or what they did with their career or um i was a big Shaq fan um <laughs> Shaq, the whole la movement um vince wilfork you know once i got into football you know those type of guys they 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 always seem to be doing things right on and off the field, and those are the guys I admire. Just the ones that were handling their business. Yeah, uh, didn't didn't matter the situation. They were they were at the top of their game in their profession and off the field. I mean, every commercial you turned on, you saw those guys, and uh, I wanted to be one of those guys. <laughs> and you are. Uh, somewhat, somewhat. <laughs> you are. No, that's that's fantastic, Shane. In, ter- in terms of inspiration, were there because also too, you're in you're in a field that's predominantly dominated by white men, right? Um, for me, growing up, I was always a huge Stu Scott fan. Um, just watching Sports Center, he inspired me in so many ways because here was a black man who talked like me, um, looked like me, and obviously I was much younger at the time, but I was still able to relate to him. Um, so he's been a huge inspiration throughout my entire career just because it, it sent the message that you can be yourself um, and not necessarily have to compromise who you are and still be successful and, and play you know the game your own way. And that's think that that's what cam is doing and that's why so many people are uh he's touching a yeah nerve he's with touching so many a nerve people. with so many people because he's he's excelling um and he's doing it on his own terms yeah and and the sport really the essence of sports is about playing by the rules but also fairness right right there's supposed to be one set of rules for everybody and uh that, that's that's pretty cool chris what about you were there any any people you looked, any players you looked up to? Well, when I got into football, when I started playing football in high school, I really wanted to um, study the history of the game. And um, when you look at some of the things that um, you know our predecessors did, you know, when you start talking about Marion Motley, you start talking about Woody Strode, Kenny Washington, you know, Bill Willis. You start talking about Paul Brown and the legacy that he had integrating African American players with his team in Cleveland. I mean, 
when you look at those things and the sacrifices that those people had to make, I mean, they don't get a lot of recognition. People don't talk about them. This is back in 1946. Nobody talks about them, but though, you know, what it took to, to, to break in and, and to be the first involved with something like that uh, in the National Football League, I just got to take my hat off to those guys and really respect the sacrifices that they made. Peter, what about you in, ter- in terms of the, the stories? You talk, they're really, the Jackie Robinson thing, I have to tell you, really depressed me. Well, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. No, uh, <laughs> no I mean, it's, I the was, tru- it's the truth. Well, it's you know, just... some, sometimes uh, it's great when, I mean, all too often someone you admire as a fan doesn't turn out necessarily to be the person you think they might be. Right. But when I was a young Giants fan, I always admired Harry Carson, mm-hmm. who led the Giants through bad years and then good years. This brilliant guy who was a great linebacker and, and a great leader. And then uh, when I got to, to meet him and talk with him, he, you know, he's become a leader in fighting concussions and, yes. and, and advocating and for battle. ways to find ways to f- fight, treat concussions. And uh, so he's a real inspiration. What yeah. about giving back? Chris, tell us about the, the Chris Canty Foundation, because so many of the players right now like yourself, but you're really doing a lot to help the kids. Yeah, there are a lot of great guys that are doing a lot of great things in our community. Um, Chris Candy Foundation is focused on the enrichment of kids' lives uh, here in the tri-state area. We work with three partner schools, uh, PS69 in the Soundview area of the Bronx, PS43, Jonas Bronx Elementary, which is south, more south Bronx, and then Murray Hill Academy here on the east side. Um, what we try to do is we try to focus on education, we try to focus on physical fitness, and then we get our kids involved in service opportunities because we want to create a positive relationship with the young people in their communities with the other people that are in their communities. So we all try to work together to create a, a better environment for all of us. And so um, really excited, really passionate about the work that we do, and I encourage uh, people to always get involved, whether it's with the Chris Candy Foundation or the other organizations um, around everybody always has something to give whether it's your time whether it's your resources a particular talent everybody has something to give so get involved don't complain just get involved and try to make your community the place that you want it to be Damon there are there are a lot of players doing things for the community oh yes ma'am um, I myself don't have a physical foundation yet I'm setting that up this off season, but I'm in my neighborhood in my areas where I'm from constantly just physically being there like Chris said the time that's what they value the most I mean the physical things they'll come and go but them being able to physically see me, touch me, and talk to me, it means the world for them. Um, I've given away gifts on Christmas. I've been there for Thanksgiving. I've supported community days. Um, and I have some things I'm planning this off season that I don't want to give away yet. But it'll be good for my community as a whole. And where where are you from originally? New Iberia, Louisiana. Wow. Yeah. So when you're when you're in town and when you're home, people really know it. I'm oh, sure yeah. the word spreads fast. Yes, ma'am. The, the entire neighborhood comes out. <laughs> 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 and they're out there. They're out. David's back. David's back. Yeah, Wait, you, I got I got to ask you one quick question. Uh-huh. Then I want to ask Chris about the the Super Bowl too, just to go through the experience real quick. Is it true your nickname is Snack? Uh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you can see, I'm, I'm 350 pounds-ish right now. It's the off-season. That's an athletic 350, though. That's an athletic frame. That's an athletic 350. I love to eat uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and any time in between. So uh, I picked up the nickname Snacks here. <laughs> It, but it's also that southern cooking too. We we oh, were down yeah. south. We were we were in Louisiana. It, it's a whole different way of eating. You, you can't get me to talking about food on here, especially yeah, right. southern food. I haven't been home 
in about three weeks. And you I'm, haven't and been to our Southern food restaurant? We got Southern food restaurants here in New York. I'm, I'm partial to that, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. The they got ranch, they got ranch the dressing. <laughs> they got the ranch dressing <laughs> by the vat, and everything is fried. <laughs> it's just you know. it's deeper than just frying the food. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, I'm messing with you. All right, the, the um, Chris, what, just give us a brief idea. Like, what is it like as a player to go through this, through that whole Super Bowl process? Like, you, you're there, you're at the game, you're doing all the interviews. You still have to practice. You still have to perform. And I would imagine everybody that you ever met your whole life going back to kindergarten is, is reaching out like, oh, can you hook me up, man? You know, it's, it's really an exciting time. And, um, you know, when you get on that plane, that charter plane, and you, you're coming off at the Super Bowl site, um, it's just this, this anxiety. It's excitement. It's a little bit of nervousness. It, it's just all of these different emotions that you're going through. You think about the road that you traveled to get to this point, and now you're here on the precipice of the pinnacle of the sport. And it's just like, it's really just an amazing feeling. And then the game itself is almost like a dream. You know, it's almost like, man, this is really the Super Bowl, all the flashbulbs going off with the kickoff and just the whole experience of it all. Um, and then when you win it, you know, it's just, you know, obviously <laughs> you, you want to be on the winning side of this thing, but you actually get to hold up this this Lombardi trophy with all of your teammates, all of the guys that you've been fighting with um, to, all year long just to try to get to this opportunity. And you finally realize your goal, um, it's, it's really something that's really special. You can't really capture it all in the words. It's got to be an amazing, amazing feeling. Unbelievable feeling, and they get to call you a champion for the rest of your life. Yes, <laughs> and we are calling which you a champion. Okay, and, 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 and Mike, Mike Media Mirror is calling us out at times, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I, wa I want to thank you all for being part of this awesome thank show. Uh, that you. was just Chris Canty, Super Bowl champion 2008 with the New York Giants, now with the Baltimore Ravens, and uh, you hear him on radio, you see him on Fox 5 Sports and other TV stations, but with our own Duke Castiglione, I want to thank you for being with us. Peter Keating, senior writer for ESPN, thank, thank you so much um, for all your help in being with us. Shana Renee Stevenson, sports blogger. She also writes for ESPN, allsportseverything.com. And Damon Harrison with the New York Jets, thank you so much for being, being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, you guys, this was thank awesome. You. And I got to thank some people. Uh, my own Fox 5 colleague, sports anchor Duke Castiglione, Denrick Romain with Buzz Brand Marketing, and also my whole team here, Team Lisa with, at Hot 97, executive producer Tone Capone, associate producer Rose Daniels, assistant producer Mia Bell, on the boards and DJing for us, the one and only DJ Michael Medium, digital assistant, the one and only TJ Charles. And remember, use your mind, it's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. I'm Lisa Evers, let's push for peace.